Hello and welcome to Sound Salad, where we toss around all things spoken and all things heard. Brought to you by Audiobooks New Zealand, New Zealand's leading producer of audio content. We hope that you will have a pleasant journey, and if we can add to your comfort in any way, please do not hesitate to press the call bell. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Sound Salad. I'm here on a kind of crisp and chilly grey Friday evening, actually, coming to you live from the wardrobe. And I'm actually, luckily, interviewing my first ever narrator for the show. So we will be speaking today with an amazing New Zealand actor and musical director and vocal mimic and, I mean, you know, a million and one things, but pianist. You know, he's just incredible, the the musically adroit Paul Barrett. So it'll be interesting to hear what your idea is about the role of the narrator in bringing stories to life for the mainly auditory audience. So, Paul, without further ado, how's your Friday night going? (laughs) (laughs) Good, thank you. I'm sitting here with a glass of wine. I was recording today. I was recording this morning at the Blind Foundation. Yeah. I'm currently doing a book. And like most actors and probably like most voice actors we're whores right we find it very hard to say no we'll say yes to uh-huh. anything yeah well we have so, to as long, right? as long as no animals and children are harmed i'll <laughs> say yes to anything uh, in terms of the books that are given to me they just yeah yeah them. sure you know and i've gone recently from a book on the story of the history of mount eden prison to a new book uh, on on maori cuisine uh, modern cuisine called Hiakai. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the name of that restaurant in Wellington. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm doing one on the history of the New Zealand garden from a Māori and Pākehā perspective from the 19th century to the present day. And I'm really... Wow, eh? Is that a, yeah. is that a and, recent uh, publication, that one? Yes, it is, with lots of pictures of people in their gardens in the 1960s and 70s, for example, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And I go, oh, look at that. And, you know, and people yeah. dressed as I remember us dressing at the time and the period. And I get a little misty eyed. I don't know why. Oh, I do anyway, love it. So, I yeah. do love it. I do love a good old nonfiction. Eh? So do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about about yourself and your and your journey as a performer, as as a as a vocal performer? And then maybe how that all kind of led you into the audiobook world, I suppose, being a well, narrator. Well, I guess I, um, when I can say this, that I was, you know, obviously had a talent and one can admit to that because I had no say in the matter any more than brown eyes and male pattern baldness. So I was, I was gifted with a, with a, with a good pair of ears, you know, and, uh, mm. and music and any sort of sounds, voices fascinated me right from the start. We, we found, my brother found an old reel-to-reel tape, which he transferred to um, CD or something a few years ago, rummaging around in a box from our parents, and uh, who were both long gone. And uh, it, was, it was recording made when I was uh, on a neighbor's big, heavy reel-to-reel tape recorder in about 19, the early 60s, when I was four or five. And on it, there's my mother prompting me to to sing, and I sang. I had a little nutmeg. Nothing. I had a little nut tree. Nothing would it bear, but a little nutmeg and a golden pear. And I thought, gosh, 
I have no memory of this myself, but I was really struck and quite pleased that um, my intonation was so good. I remember later music exploding in me when I was in my more like 10, 11, 12, but I hadn't quite recalled how far back my sort of uh, the musical instinct was there anyway. And I had this funny little English accent, because although I was born here, I was born of my two brothers, younger brothers and I were were born of English immigrant parents. Yes. And uh, we went back for a year um, for some reason. And when I came back, I I attribute the voice I have now as a 64-year-old to um, whatever I picked up when I was back in England as a three-year-old. Not when I was back, when I went to England as a three-year-old. Because mm-hmm. when we came back to New Zealand, I had this sort of rather funny hybrid voice, which I've never lost. It's It's not an affectation. The sort of accent I have, which a lot of people have mistaken for English, mm. and, uh, but it's not. It's something I picked up, even my young years at that age, and I never lost. I mean, I just mentioned that as an example of I just seem to be acquisitive um, yeah. orally. Yes. Um, I would just pick up people's voices, whether, whether I... You were quite adept at vocal mimicry, right? To the point where it sometimes... Yes, I was. Got you in trouble a few times. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. At that age, back especially, say, I'm at primary school in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm. And when that sort of thing would have been seen as snow, you know. Exactly. (laughs) Well, any sort of thing like that was seen as just disruptive show off. And I have the school reports. Mum kept our school reports and she showed them to us when we were adults. And. And there it was, you know, exhibitionism and Paul must stop showing off in class and attracting the attention of others and, and all that. I love but it. Of course, for a young performer, mm. I'm sure I wasn't, I'm sure other people who <laughs> were performers too, you know, yeah, we were for just sure. practicing. Our instinct was how can I engage an audience? And, yeah. you know, that was all we had to work with at that age. But of course, it was just simply seen as show off the disruptive exhibitionistic behavior that must be, you know, reprimanded or, yeah. or preferably stamped down. Yes, um, sure. So then throughout all of that and despite all of that, you somehow made it onto the sort of theatre circuit. And around that time, you know, there was there was Mercury Theatre, there was, there was the actual capacity for actors to train and work at the same time or to at least hone and really refine their craft while also being able to pay their rent with what it is that they're doing you know I feel like there's a real richness in learning that way that even if you've gone to drama school now you know I don't think that I don't think that it would ever really be the same I like I personally don't think that the industry will ever be the same here again anyway I mean you know how many years ago was it that that you were really kind of you know getting on that on that bandwagon of doing the tours and doing the rep and that kind of thing well of course, remember the only the, the the very first drama school. Well, the only the first professional theatres in this country. The first was downstage in '64, but I was still at yeah. primary school then. And then the first, the one and only drama school, as Toyfakari as it's now known, was the New Zealand Drama School. That didn't um, come into existence till um, the mid '70s. I was a teen, and in the '70s, and I certainly applied for it myself. I didn't even get an audition. I was absolutely crushed. To, to I auditioned as soon as I left secondary school, and uh, I I just assumed this would be the, the only way into a profession, the profession. Mm. And I didn't even get an audition, and I'll never know mm. why. I'd been acting 
in amateur theatre since I was 13, which was the earliest the uh, age you could act in most amateur theatres. This was yeah. in Wellington. Wellington. And I joined every amateur drama, drama society in Wellington and up the Carpety Coast. So I could back to back from the age of 13. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, if uh, that's not then, drama school, I don't know what is. No, well, the thing is, no? of course, the generation older than us, that was their drama school because there was no totally. choice. And so even yeah. for mine, as, of course, as I say, because Toy Fakari, the one and only, there are thousands now. Everyone opens a drama school these yeah. days. Thousands. Yeah. God. There was the only one, so it had huge kudos and huge status, and mm. everyone wanted to be in that one. Yeah. And uh, so to not get it was deeply crushing. And so I just switched and and um, thought, oh well, I'll go to university and do a do a, a music degree instead. That being my other gift, you know, my other mm. my other area of passionate interest still involves sound, of course. You know, happily, I had these these both these loves and and both these gifts a musical one and one for the voice uh, i didn't study piano performance i was learning piano privately i took to the piano like a duck to water i've been learning that privately through my since my about 15 i think i started formal lessons just for a few years but at university i studied music history and music theory and composition because some of the the, the leading composers in this country will seem to be in victoria University, mm. Douglas Lilburn, the great Douglas himself, for a year, and uh, Jenny McLeod and the late Jack Body and Ross Harris. It was a wonderful, exciting place to be. Yeah, so, uh, and then I... So was it through the musical sort of study school peeps that you met, no, you know, that, that kind I of thing? That... The no, i tell you what it was. As I say, I was doing amateur theatre, but, of course, in those days, there was still radio drama. Ah, as a, yes. As a yeah, radio yeah. plays, not just single solitary reading like we do at the Blind Foundation, that, that there is the money for now on RNZ. There were actually plays mm. where a group, a group of people came into a studio and did a play, stood around microphones, plural, and there was a person doing all the sound effects. Remember all that? Yes, oh, yes, and, all uh, the foley. The foley, you know, yes. somebody on the foley table doing their, <laughs> as the actor said, I'm just going to walk to my car. Somebody was on that on that little strip clip of, clop, clip of, clop. of going, comp, 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 oh, yes. shutting the door and even striking the match as one lit one cigarette or whatever it was. Yeah, it was great. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, they did auditions twice a year to, to uh, take in any new voices. And I auditioned for that. And I've been listening to radio plays since I was 60s. My parents bought me a transistor radio, which I'd <laughs> lie in bed and listen to at night and sort of fell asleep to listen yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Probably too adult, but I was just obsessed with the sound of voices, of course. So, I mean, I mm. listened to adult stuff, but not, as, as well as the children's request session, children's stories, which were a huge influence too, because they often mm. included, of course, very funny voices, character voices, yes. character full voices. Yeah, and, which um, we don't often get know, a chance to do, really, do we? Yeah, you know, the little tuner got away and Tubby the tuba, Danny Kay doing all that, because he was a wonderful vocal impressionist. So, you know, Rumpelstiltskin and, and, and beautiful stories, like, which turned out to be by Oscar Wilde. Funny that, the, the Selfish Giant and the Happy Prince, two of the most beautiful, beautiful stories I know, I love the happy in the world. Prince. And deeply moving, very Christian, not that I knew that. Yes, no, time. absolutely. Yeah. But of course, and then in my late teens, mum bought me one Christmas, the complete works of Oscar Wilde, which included all his short stories. And I thought, my God, it was mm. by because these stories were never attributed on the request session. It was just 
Now we're going to listen to The Selfish Giant, you know, and one who yeah, yeah. times over the years. It was never by Oscar Wilde. Yeah. So to discover in my teens, by which stage I knew Lady, I, Lady Chatterley Silver, I knew Lady Windermere's fan and the importance of being earnest. Yes. And to discover yeah. that The Selfish Giant and The Happy Prince were also by Oscar, I thought that explains it. If there's the testament to don't underestimate the quality of good literature for children, because there were yes. stupid stories like Flick the Fire Engine, mm. you know, little ones but there were these great things that i didn't quite grasp i mean all the christian imagery one doesn't grasp yes um, at that age but it it resonated so deeply they were so moving so mm. to discover ah because it was written by they were written by a great writer you know yeah there yeah you are but now the ones that stay with you and uh, you i defy anyone to to read the happy prince and not weep because mm. it's the most beautiful beautiful okay. A story of a, of somebody being utterly selfless and saying, you know, to the to the swallow, strip me bare of all my finery because I see all these people in greater need. Mm. Until of course, eventually, um, the statue was torn down because it looked so ugly. I know. And the final um, little paragraph about sacrifice. it, you know, one one day God said, God was saying, to yes, one of His angels, bring me the two most precious I things know. in the city: they, the sparrow and his heart, the, the dead sparrow and and the heart oh. which had cracked inside the statue oh, yes that's right makes you weep already yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. like it's so, so, I know, so I simple know. it's so simple yeah. eh? like but it's it's sort of a testament I think you know obviously for you to be able to say that you still r- recall those stories so vividly I think yeah. yes yes of course testament to whoever was narrating that for you at that time on live radio or whatever yeah. testament to the fact that they yes had a very bloody good script to work with sure but you also have to have a bloody good voice to pull off that sort of thing and not come across as like over sentimental as uh, you know, I mean, you, you can also sound uh, condescending when you do that sort of material, you know what I mean? Like, or you can sound preachy, you know, it's interesting. I tell you who it was, who did the, um, I recognized obviously later when I got to, I, I recognized the voice of the narrator of the happy prince. It was Bing Crosby. Really? Bing Crosby. <gasps> of course yeah. it was. Wow. You know, um, Gosh, yeah. that didn't surprise swallow, me at all. Swallow, you know, bring me the, bring me, yeah. And mm. I don't know who did the selfish giant. And there was also the snow goose. Anyway, so <laughs> radio drama. So I loved radio drama. Yeah. And so here I am as about a sort of 19, 20-year-old maybe. I'm doing my music degree at Victoria University and acting in the amateur theatre, but I do an audition for Radio New Zealand or whatever it was called then, um, for radio drama with a guy called Fergus Dick, who was one of the um, main directors of radio drama in, in Wellington, because of course there were studios also in Christchurch and Dunedin. And I got in. And, uh, and that's how I not only got experience behind a microphone, but, and gain, you know, continued to gain fluency in, in reading scripts live recording live yes sight but, reading eh? um, of course we have to have and uh, and uh, I think I was already very I was already I mean I wasn't good at much at school but my god I could I got words so I could read mm. well above my age mm. level I, I knew I had that whatever and we if you don't already have that we have to acquire that as actors a eh? yes no <laughs> it's for like sure. a voice you have to acquire fluency and all sorts of things and we mm. have to acquire good reading ability so anyway so that wasn't a problem but of course it meant that I was there working with these people. I thought, my God, the leaders of the theatre in Wellington, there was Stuart Deviney and 
and the late Ray Hinwood and Ross Jolly, the people that went on to, oh no, had just founded Circa Theatre. Oh, yes. Yeah, nice. They had just founded Circa a couple of years before and, of course, were the main actors at Downstage. And the late, also late, sadly, Peter Vier Jones, who just died last year, and a beautiful voice, a wonderful radio actor from an older generation named Alan Jarvis, who had a great voice, (laughs) and Bruce Phillips. So these people I've now known for decades, but I met them all then and I was, you know, and I was in awe of them mm. and I learned some stuff and they paid really well, my yeah. God. And we always had a rehearsal day on a Monday. They paid you just to rehearse and we'd tra- traipse in to the bowels of Bowen House, the late lamented recording studios, which they pulled down in the 90s to, to extend Parliament. They destroyed these subterranean studios with beautiful heavy parquet flooring you know perfect sound studios it was a criminal i remember dame kate harcourt being at the spearhead of the group to save the studio it's laughable it just pisses you right off yeah anyway um (laughs) so so i fall in with the radio crowd so i'm i'm at vic i'm doing my music degree amateur theater but getting my first professional gigs which is as a radio actor with the best of the best in Wellington, the professional actors. Yeah. And, uh, and from that, in 1980, the late Ray Henwood, who died a couple of years ago, offered me a role in a new play at Circa, uh, a New Zealand play by Geoffrey Thomas called Playing the Game. And mm-hmm. so this, that was my, my professional debut 41 years ago at Circa on its original site, Harris Street, Old Circa tiny little 100-seat theatre, which was such an exciting space then. Yeah. God, it was exciting. Did you ever go there? Are you, no, you're too young. You weren't, well, I mean, you weren't I, I studied down in Wellington, but I was there 2000 sort of seven to nine. And, I mean, it was it was still quite an exciting yes, space, so, but before yeah, that. Even the the new been... space by Te Papa, you mean, yes, of course, you would have only known the new circuit yes, by Te Yes, only yes, the new one, yeah. Yes, I forget when they moved, was it? Oh, no, they were already in there in the late 90s when I briefly moved back to Wellington for a couple yeah. of years before moving to Auckland. Also, yeah, they must, I was... have, it must have gone by the early 90s or something, early or mid-90s, maybe they yeah. the theatre. I was very, very aware that there was a vast and sort of long history of Wellington theatre, like just theatre yeah. buildings, theatre venues, yeah. uh, structures that have been used theatrically, et cetera, et cetera. You know, mm. being someone that went there in the kind of early, mid 2000s you know (laughs) you know you definitely turn up and you can can sense that there's a sort of that there's a historical politic you know and especially any of the older actors that still reside there if you do get the chance to speak with them or you know the blessing of working with them then you sort of Mm. get a chance to hear a little bit about that it is definitely a feeling I think that we lack or that is slightly different in that sort of scene in Auckland, I think. And I suppose it was also slightly different in the sound scene as well up here, you know, like anyone that was working in any sense with um, voiceovers and anywhere with radio work or anything like that. I'm sure that there was a a, a slightly different buzz or vibe going on in Auckland than there was in Wellington. Do you think? (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I don't. Well, do you find it quite different between Wellington and Auckland now, (laughs) you know, in terms of work and in terms of the sort of vibe of, or like accessibility of theatre and arts and performing opportunities for young actors and things like that? Wellington was very proud of the fact that it, it was regarded as the performance art capital. Yeah, totally. And it yeah. was, but it ain't any longer. 
Well, um, no, it's not, but it, it definitely still has that feel, though, you know, like it definitely, you sort of, you're very aware that you're treading on boards or on ground that, that some of the greats in, 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 in terms of our, you know, acting or like theatrical acting community have sort of trained on or have, have worked on, yeah, you know, it's kind of a cool there thing. Are, there are, you know, notable actors in Auckland too. I mean, I've lived yeah. here for 20, 21 years now. I moved here just before the turn of the century. So, yeah, 22 years. So I haven't worked in Wellington since. I, I did my one-man show, Tick, Tick, there 10 years ago, um, mm-hmm. briefly. Um, but apart from that, I've only the only theatres I've gone back to, to compare, in fact, are all the others, the court in Christchurch, yeah, uh, yeah. of which I'm an associate, and, and the fortune in Dunedin, which is now sadly gone, and even Centrepoint, now Mr North. But I've never worked in Wellington. I mean, nobody worked. The downstage is a mausoleum now. I can't tell yeah. you how exciting it was when... So I did a few plays there in that, in that my first years in the biz there in the early 80s. I did some plays there and God, it was exciting. It was so exciting. I was just tremulous with excitement when I, you know, that hallowed space. It's mm. such a shame now because it's just deadly. It's just, you know. And, uh, and, it's such uh, a shame, eh? It's not used anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So think- at the centre of theatrical stuff moved to, had moved to Auckland. You yeah. Know, uh, time yeah. I moved. Do you think that all of that sort of uh, experience in a theatrical environment and all of the sort of, I mean, you know, you have to develop such emotional, like vocally emotional athleticism, you know, like you have to, you have to develop the technical skills required to be able to sometimes project to an audience of 1200 and sometimes Mm -hmm. 12, you know, (laughs) and any number in between really, Mm. depending on what you're doing. Do you think that that sort of experience has aided or assisted or made you a better narrator or a better vocal performer when it comes to being just behind a microphone? The theatre experience? Yeah. I guess so. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I think probably one of the biggest things that is quite obvious with your voice particularly or any voice that I would consider it slightly more classical is the care taken around enunciation and articulation. In theatre, you have to be so on form with that in such a muscular way, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of no different right behind a microphone in a lot of ways, you know? No, that's right. But but the theatre is about, the theatre is about the voice. Well, obviously the microphone is too, because there's only the voice, literally. But the theatre, I mean, compared to film and telly, you know, we say the theatre is the predominant means of expression is the Mm, voice. Yeah. Especially in a big theatre. And uh, you can't do teleacting. You can't. You can't go mumble, mumble, mumble. You know there isn't a mic dangling mm, above your yeah. head. You know, and my God, something that my generation of actors has seen. It's funny. On the one hand, as the younger generations of actors get as much, if not more, experience as actors in this country in film or television than my generation had, because it was bugger all of it back then. Yeah, we may have had the theatrical experience because that's all there was predominantly. But now, so on the one hand, they get greater experience in film and television, but one noted with alarm, then if they were in a theatre, a complete inability to project their voice beyond the edge of the stage. Yeah, totally. And still use it as if they were mic'd. And you think, you can't do that now, sorry. Yeah. Just as as, uh, people like me, especially, I mean, I'm I'm much happier in a big space. I've always Mm. been just big loud yeah and just as I had to learn and I'm still not comfortable behind the camera you know it still freezes me 
And mm. I always envied those people, particularly younger ones who just, they had that naturalism. Yeah, yeah. and maybe it because they didn't have to modify any larger theatrical technique, you know, um, so it was easier for them mm. to be real. And it's funny, but on the other hand, as I say, I also think, well, if you're then going to be in the theatre, you've really got to learn to do more with your voice. You can't rely on that little muttered because it doesn't carry any not only is it inaudible it is inexpressible yeah in this tiny little narrow conversational range you can't you can't do Chekhov or Shakespeare or anything well you can't like do the job that. which is essentially to move people yeah. isn't it you yeah. know yeah and you can't move, move them to laughter it doesn't yeah. just mean move them to tears even moving them to laugh oh yeah no of course just that, you know, shift, yeah. sh- simply moving them or shifting them from the state that they were when they walked in <laughs> yeah, yeah. any sense of movement generally will happen through sound or oral stuff when it comes to you know the theater for me at yeah. least anyway I think for most people yeah. so you've got some epic fortes such as accents and being able to switch between accents really really sort of swiftly and easily and doing all of those accent switches really credibly as well do you have any kind of like horror stories or any or any sort of projects or books that you've had to record that were particularly challenging in that regard, you know? Oh, I do, Given all of your Um, fortes that you have. Yeah, (laughs) I do, actually. I tend to now do non-fiction. I don't recall asking to do it. I'm actually very happy to do. I think, oh, God, I'm too tired to do all those voices now. Did I really do all those voices? Because when I look back, the year I I won, and I was was so chuffed, I was voted narrator of the years. You know, there's a... Um, there's actually a cup floating around Sunday with names and graves. Well, yeah, so they don't do that anymore, do they? They don't, don't just realise they don't do it anymore. The old, the old, the old Merv Smith. And Parnell, and... Yes. There were photos of winners, George Henare. And, yes, there was Merv and, Smith um, Merv there Smith too. And, and me with, with, with Judith Tizard when I was presented with mine. Yes. I won it in 2005. And that year, as a result of, I imagine in particular, I did two back-to-back Wilbur Smiths. Now, Wilbur Smith is a South African, hugely successful, massively mega-selling, yeah. you know, squinty million-dollar next author level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. swashbuckly, <laughs> you know, sex and blood and gore and yeah. on the high sea. And he wrote this series of novels of a family over generations, over like 200 years. And I did one of them and uh, set in the 18th century. And, but it required about maybe 80, 90, 100 different voices. And I Good said to, Lord. I did it with Helen Marnie, our wonderful Helen producer at the time. I said, I'm going to do voices. She said, all right, darling. And so I, <laughs> I, I started a list of famous last words. As little <laughs> mnemonics to remember who. Yes, because there was Cornish of various generations and South African and even Hottentot. Hottentot? What's that? Hottentot, the African. Oh, yes. There's another word for it. It's a bit like, I think, I don't think you're allowed to say Hottentot anymore. It's a bit like calling Inuit Eskimo. It's become, it's become, you you know, you shouldn't say Hottentot, but I forget what their tribe is called, but they speak with clicks. I see. There are some. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so. Interesting. Interesting to have to do that. <laughs> yes. And to have to learn. Yeah. Well, that, I thought, I, I, I don't know how we knew. We knew about, maybe she was the one who knew about it. She said, oh, Hottentot, that's the one that uses clicks. And we um, we did a little bit of research and I said, oh, so his name was spelled X-I-A, but it was Ja, um, Ja. So I would do the click. And, uh, wow. But anyway, 
And they, uh, I had to do a million different accents and different ages and different sexes, of course, because you have to be male and female. Yeah, course, totally. Yeah. You as a woman know you also have to do male voices. Mm-hmm. And it's quite possible just to adjust the pitch slightly. And um, but I yes. played in accents and all. And uh, <laughs> and those each they that book was four hundred pages long, and it was a huge success. And then I did a second one. There was, I think, demand for it. And so I did the sequel, the next one in the series, which was another. The, those two books took me about four or five months to do because yes. they were just massive. Yeah. I literally spent half a year as that was. Anyway, but I had some wonderful, they happened to be an open day, which they had like once a year back in those days. Mm. And, and I was. You know, we were there. Is that when like ages. members can come in, or is that members when members can come? And and there was oh, yeah. this, there was there was there was a number of particularly older men who say, "Oh, Paul, here's somebody else who wants to meet you." He he heard the Wilbur Smith books, and then mm. my, my hand was being pumped by these men saying, "Oh, thank you for the oh, it was so thrilling," and oh, and, you know, and I'd never heard any feet. We'd we'd get, we got the odd letter occasionally, the odd thank you, yeah. which was lovely. But it was just lovely to be reminded because, of course, what we do is is literally in a little box in a room, and then we know it goes out there. But to actually get that feedback, yeah, was for just sure, wonderful. I thought. That's right. People actually do hear these books we do, and you know, and it's that was very that was great, each other. Yeah, and no, to totally. The audience, but I mean, hearing feedback from from a, from a talking book was was really lovely. Yeah. So that was great. The next question kind of follows along, kind of organically. What does doing the job mean to you, or what does what does assuming the role of a narrator kind of mean to you after all these years that you've been doing it? How how, how long have you been? Well, 20 Looking years, as soon as I moved 20, to Auckland, yeah, yeah. I knew Gosh. about I knew about the Blind Foundation. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I also did a lot of commercial voice work then, which paid paid a hell of a lot better. I don't get that anymore now. The phone stopped ringing. <laughs> I've oh, lost gosh. my number. What do you was, think that is? Like, why? why I was think... lamenting about that with our dear colleague, John Callan, today during, oh, yeah. my, during my coffee break this morning at the studios. I mean, our voices just, speaking of my accent, they want a more Kiwi sound now. Yeah, and our voices yeah, are older, course. you know, because other colleagues of my my generation also said, where's the voice work gone? Mm. And John, who's 10 years older, saying, well, apart from the odd sort of, you know, they want the odd posh one. And um, our voices sound a bit too finished now. They like more Kiwi, more. It's yeah. that just the evolution of becoming more and more as we should. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's fine. But I mean, it's our loss. But I mean, anyway, I mean, I'm sure when I was in my peak period, when I moved here, and I was about 40, I did huge amount. And I'm sure I probably there was a disgruntled 64 year old saying, where's my voice work going? Because, you know, next generation had come along, you know, me and others of my age. So it's just an age thing. You just have to move aside gracefully and say, oh, well, you know, now you're the old dude and they say, yeah, we know that voice. Or, yeah, those voices are sounding old and tired. We want young, fresh, new, more Kiwi. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's what yeah. they use it. And then the trend <laughs> changes and thus yeah, here yeah. we are. So anyway, so that was about the commercial work. So that's gone now. So that's been a bit of a, that's been a, bit of a hole in the old income. It was a regular. I mean, you know, you still get a lot of it because you're, hmm. you, you're good. You're, in, you're on your strap. Um, but I've had my time in the sun and one's had to, you know, put one's big boy pants on and say, oh, well, I had a great run. And I did for about 25 years. Oh, but it's totally. Gone. It's gone now. 
Well, uh, I don't know. I believe that, you know, you still have a highly veritable career that's still continuing and extending every every novel that we complete at Blind Foundation. Well, sorry, at Blind yeah, Foundation that's right. NZ, but you I mean, know. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's In terms somewhat, of that other side of career, though, sure, yeah, I yeah. completely understand I mean, it's still that. immensely satisfying, and I, I love it, but, of course, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's nowhere near as well-paid as commercial work. And, uh, you know. But it is an incredibly satisfying and rewarding job. Oh, yes, though, yes, really. yes. I mean, all that's, all that's obviously taken for granted. If it was just for the money, one wouldn't bother. Because Absolutely. I mean, people might not know, but, you know, it's not a 40-hour-a-week job. No narrator does or can do 40 hours of recording a week. So we just do, you know, several two- or three-hour sessions mm. a week, and that's usually about as much as, you know, well, that's literally all there is time to do, um, yeah. given the number of narrators and only a handful of studios. So it's not as if we can earn our living solely by doing this. So, of course, the aspect of doing it, as a community service is still has to be very strong in us. Yeah, totally. I think as well, though, you know, we largely do a lot of New Zealand titles and things, but on the sort of global sphere, you know, I don't know if if there are any Kiwi narrators on Audible or that are narrating through Audible, you know, from what I understand, their sort of deals for their voices are remarkably shallow and (laughs) sieve-like. Yeah, I don't, it's an interesting one. I just did want to bring up one last wee thing. So obviously, I think in episode one, I brought up the fact that Cademan Records, or the two sort of babes that I like to call them, who kind of sort of launched Cademan Records and made it a a sort of prominent player in the audiobook industry, when they chased Dylan Thomas out of the 92nd Street YMCA in 1952 and cornered him saying, please, for the love of everything, can you record, like, can you come with us and narrate your poetry? Can we make an LP? That'd be, that'd be great. So uh, I've got a wee example of Dylan Thomas, actually. It, it, it's, it's one of the first, it wasn't the first, but one of the first, which is, do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright, Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. There was a little connection that you had with Dylan Thomas, though, when it came to audio narration as well, which I kind of wanted to draw a link to. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, 
I, I, I've done in the theatre, Dylan Thomas's great play for voices, as he called it, describing a little Welsh fishing village back in the 40s or something. And it's his great opus. And he wrote it for radio. It's called A Play for Voices. And it has two narrators and then characters. And I've done that play twice. The first one I did in Auckland, and then the second one I did at the Court Theatre in Christchurch. When I did mm. the silo production about 15, 14 something years ago, we did it as if it was a 1950s studio. And so oh, yeah. the audience came in and we were dressed in 50s, you know, very loose trousers and jackets. And we all sat mm. on chairs and we got up and stood up at microphones, just as we did in the days of doing radio plays. And there was somebody there on an effects table. The Foley table. Wow. You know, and it was gosh. lovely. And it was a lovely idea. Caroline Bell Booth directed that. Ah, oh, nice. And, uh, and yes. And uh, and then I did it in a semi-staged. I mean, it really is, you know, just a, a voice, a, a play to listen to. Action mm. is described. but And so my dear friend and colleague, Geraldine Brophy, was um, asked to direct a production, a sort of stage production at the court in Christchurch and mm-hmm. so that was about 10 years later so I went down about a decade ago and um, did it again again playing voice one of the two narrators doing the long long opening which describes this town waking up it starts before dawn with the, his, the famous first line of the play is to begin at the beginning <laughs> night it. it says and then on it goes and it's still and it's still and gradually there's the twinkling of dawn on the harbour and you know the first person coming into the street and the cat sort of slinking around the neighbourhood and it's utterly enchanting so to find oh, it, it. it's been a real treat yeah. oh that's so awesome it's a shame we don't do radio plays anymore Ron. I, I know I know. Or even actually, even just doing, you know, multi-voice books, to be honest. I mean, well, that's right. That's there right. are enough books, books that have enough dialogue yes. and or different mindset or viewpoint descriptions yes. and things like that. You know, well, I tell you what, I did one. Here's the, I've met a few famous people in my time, but there is one book on one occasion that the Blind Foundation make an exception and say, we want you to be to share a reading of a book because the book is in a female voice and a male voice. And the author is a celebrated New Zealand actress, Barbara Ewing, who's been mm-hmm. in England for about 40 years. She was in a very famous series called Brass in the eighties. Yeah. No, I've read, I've read um, um, a few of her books, I think. For, yes. Well, yeah. the, the actress or the, the actresses, mm-hmm. the one about the actresses, this one was about the great British painters, Turner and all those people in 18th century London. Oh, um, nice and Gainsborough and all that. Um, God, she's good. And half of it was written in her voice. And Helen, that producer, said, and she's, I've chosen you to be the male voice. And um, she's in New Zealand. She comes back every few years. And she's recorded her half. You don't get to work together. (sighs) She's recorded her half. And I want you to do your half. And then Helen said, I've arranged for us to have drinkies and a little lunch. And so... Nice. We went to that lovely little place down behind the old studios, you know, that lovely garden. Foundation on George? Yes, on George. And I was so awestruck. I said, I'm so starstruck to meet you. I said, my mum and I used to love brass in the 80s, where she played this voluptuous woman with gorgeous 
hits that, that yeah. used to entice Timothy. Oh, who was that wonderful actor? And Prunella Scales and Timothy West. Timothy West played this lustful boss who found every excuse to come across and gaze at her at her gorgeous breasts, sweaty breasts. <laughs> she pounded. She was a working class woman, and he was the boss of the manor. You know. Anyway, so it was wonderful to actually meet her. And she was the most enchanting, wonderful woman. And then oh, apparently did. she was thrilled with with the work I did for her. We heard back from London, so that was really that was very. Was really yeah, she wanted to narrate her own book. Theo from Audiobooks NZ was put in charge of you know making sure that the oh. recording got done um she wanted to do it herself well you know over over lockdown and um yeah she was absolutely baffled and shocked to hear that you know she was being asked to sit in her wardrobe for a while or under a duvet to be able to read and, and uh, narrate it without any interference with the sound you know which I find kind of kind of you know hilarious to think about is Little old Barbara Ewing, you were just perching in her wardrobe, or you know, just being yes. left with all of her beautiful coats around, going, Fuck this, you know, yeah. <laughs> where's my studio, you bastards? That's right. I love it anyway. Well, I'm very mindful of times. We'll, we'll finish up there, but thank you so much for your time, Paul. You're thank welcome. you very, very much for coming back with us, and uh, no doubt we will have some more. Some more nice conversation topics to bring you back on for eventually at a later date, no doubt. Sure. Bye. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Romy Hooper. You've been listening to Sound Salad for all things spoken and all things heard. To hear more Sound Salad episodes, go to www.soundsalad.co.nz. This has been brought to you by my gold sponsor, Audiobooks NZ. Check out their library at www.audiobooksnz.co.nz. Call bell.